Hello, I'm the Pink Phantom, and this is my podcast. Join me as I delve into the world of games and gaming, and especially old school RPGs. Together, let's voyage into the astral realm and check out my Phantom Call. In this episode, I have calls from Jason of the Nerds RPG Variety Cast and Daniel the Bandit's Tea Podcast. Links to their podcasts are in the show notes. Another reading from Muster, advice for playing AD&D in the wargaming way, and then finishing off again with more talk of orcs in my Tales of the Dragon Slayer AD&D solo campaign. So let's get to it. Hey, Jason here. Just listened to episode 73. Great episode. Very interesting way to set up a deity in your campaign. I really enjoyed the way you did that. Your oracle sounds interesting. I kind of have gone the way of the Matt Jackson oracle of what he's been doing on YouTube, or was doing on YouTube, but with, with three, just three six-sided dice. But, um, no, that's very interesting. I don't I even own any fake dice. So maybe that's something I need to remedy. But all in all, great points in looking at what's going to happen with Paladin and great points on the calls from Daniel and I. And I look forward to seeing what happens next. So keep up the great work. Talk to you soon. Thank you, Jason. Uh, thank you for the compliments. Yeah, it was fun uh, figuring out how to, I didn't have a, a clear idea of what I wanted for, you know, a, a new God or something like that. And so it was fun to go back to the books and figure out a way to use those resources as, as inspiration, as opposed to using them strictly for, for rules or stat blocks or things like that to, uh, use them to create something new that still has, you know, its roots within the, the, the game itself. And I I really went I went to Matt Jackson's channel after you talked about that, and that's a really interesting oracle as well. I'll uh, link that in the show notes. It's a pretty neat video for anybody that's interested in it. I think for for fate dice or fudge dice, you would have to have a a reason to have them unless you unless you're like me, you just like interesting dice, and and I pulled them out just to. I thought they might be useful. I was wondering how something like that can be useful in, in decision-making as opposed to rolling regular dice on a pre, pre-written table or something. Uh, but And uh, the dice I got are, I think they're called heartbeat dice. They have uh, a line that goes around one axis of the die and hits four faces, and on two of the faces it's just a straight line, and on the other two faces it's got one of those up and down squiggles like it would be a, a monitor when the heartbeat comes up. And then of course you have the two blank sides. So those, those were pretty neat when I saw them. So I just picked up a set, but I, th- I think you'd have to have a need for them if you're not playing fate or fudge, but you have something that you need, you know, positive, negative or hit miss or, some, you know, some other sort of binary result and maybe uh, with a neutral result mixed in that's, that's what they could be useful for. So thank you for the call. Uh, Jason is a oftentimes caller. He's has his own podcast, the Nerds Variety RPG Cast, uh, and that is linked in the show notes as well as the video about to Mac Jackson's video about his 
his own oracle, which is interesting. So I advise checking that out if you like that sort of thing. Hey, Pank Vandom, thanks for clarifying that uh, rule as it would be in AD&D about the order of how you pick you know, classes, races, et cetera. I think in my mind, I was going off basic, right? Because of course, basic is races class. And the first thing you do is you pick a class after you roll your ability scores, you know, and then you can adjust your ability scores based on your, your new, your new class. And of course, at that point, I suppose you could lower it below the minimum, although I don't, you really can't because minimums are nine and you can't lower ability score below nine anyway. So Kind of a, not really, doesn't really track anyways, but I think that's what I had in my head. So that's probably where I had the rules jumbled. But yeah, very clearly, based on what you read, I, I would interpret it as your way. However, and, and so my point, my argument wouldn't stand. However, the point that you made about you wouldn't suddenly stop being an elf, would you, if you lowered below what a minimum was for an elf? So I think, uh, yeah, I, that that's another thing. Though a paladin is a special case, so I think you're in a really interesting space here because, frankly, if it was a ranger, um, I don't know, uh, yeah, if it was a ranger or some other class, a fighter, because I think in AD&D most classes have some restrictions or uh, minimums, right? So a thief, if it was anything like that, I wouldn't make them lose their class because then what would they be? But a paladin is one of those few classes in AD&D that you can lose, right? You can lose it by going against your alignment. It very clearly spells, spells that out, so... Yeah, pretty interesting. Anyways, that's that's cool. The other reason why I wanted to call in was about your Oracle. I really like it. I think that's really fun. You know, and I bought some of those Fate slash Fudge dice a while back because some one of my friends ran, well, what was supposed to be in a short campaign but ended up being one session. <laughs> and I bought the dice after the first session uh, so that I have them sitting around. So that might be fun to experiment with. I wonder if I like your idea of using where they fall on the table. I really like that kind of stuff. This is one reason why rolling physical dice is nice. But I wonder, too, if you could use different colors. I can't remember if they come in different colors or if you have them in different colors. So you could do that as well. You know, if, if you roll the plus minus, maybe one supersedes the other. The only, uh, the only issue or thought that I have with this is that the Oracle seems to always give you a the same basic answer in the, in the sense that, like, no matter what's going on, it, it will always give you the same percentage of your pluses and minuses, right? You can't really change that because you're only rolling two dice and they're always the same. And I don't know that there'd be a way to modify them, right? So that would be the only downside to it that I can see. And what I mean by that is, for instance, the Oracle that I've been using a lot, the Mac, Jack, Mac Jackson Oracle, you roll 2d6, basically, if it's a 50-50 chance and you take the highest one, you know, so you do two different colors, basically. But then you can roll a third die in the middle and say, okay, well, it's more likely, so I'm going to consider this dice positive, or it's less likely, so this dice is negative. And that allows you to kind of influence the oracle a little bit. So again, I, th- I love the idea of the plus minus, but I wonder if there's a way to influence it. I guess you could do it the same way. You could do what I said at the beginning, use colored dice in addition to your plus minus, and then add more of them. Well, I don't know if that would really work. So I'm probably talking around in circles, so... <laughs> What I wanted to say was, I really like it. I'm going to pull my fate dice out and maybe try that uh, next time I do some solo play. See how it works out. I think it's pretty cool because really most of the time you don't necessarily have to use a third die, even in the one that I'm using. Just a a straight chance is good. So very, very cool. I love how you kind of rolled to create your own god. That was really fun. And the um, maybe you maybe figured it out by now or somebody else may have called in, but the the Noonian or however they say it is... Uh, Fritz Lieber's creation from uh, Farford and the Great Mouser. Uh, so 
they were in Greyhawk, uh, not in Greyhawk, I should say, they were in AD&D because I, I think Gygax maybe or somebody in the company was actually in connection with Libra at the time and got permission. And the, because um, I mean, they're even in the edition after they removed some of the other ones. But also uh, there was a Lankmar a, uh, supplement. So you could play in Lankmar in AD&D. So just a little history stuff, which you may already know, but for people who are listening, if maybe they didn't know it, uh, that's where those gods came from. And they're really interesting, too, because they're almost... I know you rolled the one was like a demigod, but I don't think a lot of them are actually true gods either because it's like a weird cosmology. But I love how you put it together with the insects and the thieves. And the, then you were like, okay, there's searching and recovering. Really, really good. This, this is the thing about rolling random stuff, right? It just really brings our creativity forward. So, awesome. And I'm looking forward to see what happens with the orcs. I'll talk to you soon. Hey, Daniel. Yeah, I thought those gods were associated with Greyhawk, but I wasn't 100% sure of it. So it's good it's good to hear that my my deep nerd knowledge was was on point for for that. As far as the uh the the oracle, there are ways I think you can adjust it. Um you know, what you you what plus minus means and what the double blank means will make a difference cuz the way the the way that, Every, it breaks down. If you have a double of something, plus plus minus minus blank blank, it's basically half the chance to get one of those as to get one of the mixed results. Plus blank minus blank plus minus. So it because it breaks down to essentially nine possibilities, and so you have some that are two one out of nine, some that are two out of nine. So if there's a slight difference, if it's like you know, it's you know, a little more likely or a little less likely, you could change what the plus minus and the the double blank means. So to give yourself a so plus minus a plus and a minus could be yes but, and the double blank could be no but something good happens. Or you could flip them, and that would give you a little better chance of getting that that yes or no. But it wouldn't be, you know, an exceedingly much larger chance. Uh, there are different colors of fake dice. I'm sure of that. Uh, I know the the little heartbeat dice I'm doing. I've I've got a purple one and one that from the tone I think it's a glow in the dark. I haven't really tested it out. So you could do that. Uh, you could do it positional. You know, one takes precedence over the other for the plus minus, and then, like I said, use the double blank as a special case or maybe some kind of a push. You just don't get an answer right now. But you could use multiple dice. I think, as, as I recall, it's been a long time since I looked at anything fudge or fate related. But I believe a lot of those systems, you do roll, sometimes tend to roll handfuls of dice based on skills or talents or circumstances or whatever. And you're counting the pluses and you're counting the minuses. And if you have more pluses than minuses, you succeed. And if a task is more difficult, you need more pluses overall, That that kind of thing. And what you could do with the oracle is, if you deem it, you know, more likely, less likely, you could roll three dice and say, the first minus, if it's more likely, the first minus doesn't count. Or if it's very likely, the first two minuses don't count. So the pluses kind of had, you know, you don't have a a bigger chance of getting a plus, but they have a better chance of sticking and giving you that yes answer. Because you only need one net plus to get that yes. And, you know, the reverse is true. If it's less likely, the first plus doesn't count. Or you could say blanks count as pluses or minuses, depending on if it's more or less likely. So you could do it with 
with multiple dice to throw in there if if you wanted to to utilize a greater gradient than just yes and yes yes but no but no or no and it, it you get that a greater than that six degree gradient and better separation than just there's twice as much chance of this and half as much chance of this and as far as the orcs go well we're going to hear more about them in just a little while that's foreshadowing folks but thanks for the feedback and uh now let's talk a little more about muster the next section of muster starting on page 131 is maintaining a campaign long term D&D campaigns are super long compared to many other role-playing games. A hundred sessions is not particularly exceptional. In any other game, I consider 20 sessions to be crazy long. I don't actually have any particularly clever observations to make about how to get the game to go long. For us, it just happened when I put the right pieces together. There's this monumental, nigh-incomprehensible challenge of mathematics and war that rises from the simple rules and premise, and it asks you, can you even get to the second level in this thing? If you hear that call and then see those 15 XP you managed in the first section, session and start thinking about what could have been done better, then that's going to take you far. If not, then perhaps it isn't the game for you. Of course, you want to put the practical things right. Weekly sittings, four hours is good, on a regular calendar. Open and safe social practices good hospitality, open call for new participants, and constantly rolling teaching practices. It's not different from any other hobby club, just this one happens to be practicing the deepest game of all. One difference in the creative dynamics between the wargaming way and other types of adventure gaming I've seen is that the traditional RPG campaign exists sustained by a continuous plot, while the wargame D&D campaign is sustained by that terrible challenge. When we played a 50-session campaign of 4th edition D&D a couple of years ago, and the plot came to its conclusion, it was a day of satisfaction and joy. It wouldn't have occurred to me to keep going. To the contrary, the last third of the campaign was already a heated race toward the end, pacing the plot of the grand fantasy epic. A challenge-based wargaming campaign doesn't usually have such a plot priority. The campaign, when built into a healthy routine, exists more as a social contract between the club members. It's the stage for play, a platform onto which the group can set various adventure scenarios. Instead of being like a novel series, the D&D campaign is like a community theater stage, there to be used to stage wargaming. The implication is, of course, that campaigns can be put away and revived, participants can change, and there is no single character that must live for the campaign to keep going. The campaign lives in the developed rules, setting, and thematic understanding of the subject matter. Stepping outside the text, this uh, page and a half of content here in this section is pretty packed with a lot of things. One of the first things it talks about is 100 sessions not being particularly exceptional for a D&D campaign in the wargaming style. And that's, that's Something that's a strong statement in a hobby that tends to run, I think, shorter, sh- shorter number of sessions before it either flames out or comes to a conclusion. But again, a lot of those campaigns are 
as he spoke about the fourth edition D&D campaign he was part of, something that's driven more by a plot. And it stands, if you look at his suggestion of weekly sittings of four hours, which is quite the time commitment itself on paper, uh, you're talking about a year's worth of campaigning for a hundred for a hundred sessions because two weeks in a year, two years. But if you, if you're interested in something like say the Pathfinder adventure paths, those can take a long time in, in when you're even with uh, regular sessions. I know uh, Joe part who has the hindsightless podcast. He's been involved in the wrath of the righteous running the wrath of the righteous. Pathfinder Adventure Path for several years, and they're just getting into the latter part of those of those books, and that not even to the last book yet. So it can be a strong time commitment either way, regardless of style. And uh, a lot of people would, you know, hear Ooh, weekly that's hard, and four hours that's a lot of time. And it is looking at uh, just, you know, the, the things you see posted online, sort of anecdotal evidence, that is a lot. People tend to like uh, shorter sessions and maybe not even weekly, but maybe bi-weekly. And if you switch over to the board gaming hobby, the, the broader hobby, board gaming hobby, uh, You'll see a lot of commentary about a good length for games being an hour, an hour and a half to play because of people not having a lot of time. But if you think about it, folks who are involved in sports, whether they're playing them or coaching them, or they just have someone in their family that is participating in them and they have to lend a hand, give a ride, what have you, maybe end up sticking around for practice because they have to give them a ride back if it's the children. Four hours in a week on a weekly basis is not particularly that much. I mean, how many of us devote, sit down and devote three, three and a half hours to watching a football game or two or two and a half hours watching a basketball game and this is not that much longer than that and if you figure you're doing it live you're going to a football game you're going to a basketball game you figure in travel maybe you get a meal before or after you've made a four-hour commitment and it's a weekly basis and sometimes multiple times a week so it is something that people fit into their lives when they desire to so someone with that level of commitment and he's talking about the level of commitment of people who specifically join some sort of a hobby club where they're getting together with people for the purpose of participating in that hobby whatever it may be and that's a very strong tradition in the wargaming uh idiom in the wargaming hobby of having wargaming clubs where people get together and wargame particularly in the miniatures wargaming side so 
And again, going back to the board gaming hobby, you're talking about going to someone's house. You don't have the time taken to set up. Maybe you'll have a meal or you know a sizable snack or something together before or after. Maybe there'll be a lot of kibitzing during the game where you're playing the game, but you're also talking and having a good time, and sometimes the game pauses while you're doing that. That may be a three or four hour thing that you're doing, and you're probably doing it on a pretty regular basis, depending. Now, for some folks, that's not because they have those other hobbies as well, or because they have other commitments as well. That's not as possible. And certainly, folks with younger kids, that's, that's going to be very difficult. And kids that have their own hobbies later in childhood, it's going to be more difficult to do it for themselves. But for those who have the time and inclination and dedication, it's probably not that big a big a commitment. If that's something you want to center in your life. And that those are the choices that we make. But that's that's probably what it takes to keep a long term campaign going. And there are times you put the campaign on pause. You know, we're getting into we're deep into the holiday season here in toward the end of the year where we have particularly here in the states where we have the United States where we have Thanksgiving in November, we had Halloween at the end of October. We have Christmas at the end of December and there's a lot of family gatherings and gatherings with friends and things like that throughout the course of these months. So of course that can interfere with something like a hobby of playing a role playing game and particularly or a war game or or the the combination thereof that's being espoused here in muster. So that's a that's a real quick little section. I probably could have added that to the last one if I had realized I was coming up on what looked like the end of a chapter. Uh, the next chapter uh, looks like it gets into a little more specifics. It's talking about scenario formation. So you know, a small, smaller piece of the puzzle of the campaign. And I think it's a good, good place to have a break. So this is a little shorter tidbit. And uh, next time we'll cover probably the whole chapter of scenario formation. I don't think there's any point in breaking that into pieces. And we'll uh, see how long that takes us. So uh, I hope you enjoyed this little smaller tidbit. Uh, still a fair amount of, of book to go here, but we're negotiating through. Uh, over on the uh, Hexpress uh, YouTube channel. Uh, he is also continuing to cover muster. I think he's up to five sessions now. He does it as sort of a live stream read-along, and uh, they're usually an hour or a little more. So he's put five hours into this as well. And uh hope you'll come back to the next <laughs> reading and slightly meandering commentary of As I Read Through Muster, A Primer for War, Advice for Playing D&D in the Wargaming Way. And now, more from my solo AD&D RPG campaign, Tales of the Dragon Slayers. Another tribe of orcs, the vile curly tails, will be arriving at the party's keep. This raises a couple of questions. What is the party's disposition of forces now that their full force is in is in residence 
at their headquarters here and what will be the direction that the orcs will approach from. In terms of what the party is going to do with their forces as part of gaining ex gaining ownership of the keep, the party is to help use their forces to help patrol the road. There are basically 20 miles between each of the outposts. And so the party is responsible for essentially the half a day's journey on either side of, of their keep, which is about, about 10 miles. And by the D and D handbook, the, the light troops that they're going to use to patrol the road on a light horse can travel about 60 miles a day, meaning they can patrol their 10 mile segments essentially three times over the course of a day. Uh, the party is using their one of their units of their light lancers and a unit of their uh, light bow, light horse bowmen, and essentially combining, taking half of each, combining them in force, and running one along the northern route and one along the southern route, patrolling back and forth. Uh, because the orcs are arriving in the at the noon period, noon time day period, and the patrols would have started roughly around seven in the morning, running roughly seven to seven, six to six, seven to seven, depending sundown and sunup. That means that the troops in question will probably have been an hour outbound on their second loop their section of patrolled area so that means that those units will not be available for any battle that should occur uh, they also are using their light infantry and some of their some of their light infantry and some of their archers to form perimeters around their keep with the light infantry serving as essentially as skirmishers about two rounds not quite two rounds away movement away from the keep with the archers roughly halfway back where they can keep their eye on the road for any forces coming north or on the north or south road and with but also to be within distance of support of that light infantry should they need be and the light infantry will basically be there if it's a small force to confront consolidate with the archers and hold at bay while more forces arrive or if it's a large force to fall back to a better sort of defensive position on top of the hill of the party that the party's keep is in or the top of the hill on the other side of the road and where the party's keep is while the road in general runs north south this particular section runs east west essentially between a couple of hills so the party's disposition they also have essentially on standby armored up, weaponed up, sort of a ready reaction force. One of their two units of heavy infantry, one of their two units of heavy lancers, with the other forces being having been being used to do routine tasks around helping to continue to build and maintain some of the structures they've had to build outside to help house the horses and themselves while the keep is still being cleaned out. And in other days to use to run up and down the road to get supplies from the towns to the south. 
but right now all the forces are present in the keep. And of course, some of those forces are also off duty because they will be the night watch. So there are forces that will be immediately available and there are forces that will be able to eventually enter the, possibly enter the fray, depending on how long it takes them to arm and armor up should an attack occur. As far as the orcs, where are they coming from? Well, to the east, to the west of the party, that is, that is the general direction of the Dragon's Cave, which is currently occupied by another band of orcs. And in between that cave and the party structure, roughly, is a group of hobgoblins who have occupied some caves and some hills, some of the hills nearby. So it's unlikely they'll be be approaching from directly from the west or even maybe from the northwest to the north several days journey to the north you have the last out guarding guard outpost before the town down in the valley which is currently occupied by gnolls and several tribe other tribes of humanoid creatures that have allied with them so if the orcs had come directly from the north or from the immediate northeast or northwest, they probably would have been sucked into that somehow, either through battle or by joining. So they probably did not come from that direction. Which leaves sort of the east-northeast, the east, and the southeast, and the southwest. Now, the southwest, they would have to be skirting the orcs and the hobgoblins, and also skirting the dwarves that are in the mountains to the southwest, as well as any other creatures that have taken up residence there. And to the southeast, probably something similar. We don't know. We haven't established in the campaign any creatures living in that direction. Uh, also, I should mention in the, in the mountainous areas and hill areas to the southwest, we also have cloud giants in the mountains and hill giants. In the hills, so it would be difficult for those orcs to get through there without having already encountered something. There's also the matter of if they are too far south and too far north when they enter onto the road, should they enter near or onto the road, there are other guard posts posted a day's journey in either direction. So they have to have somehow. So the most likely direction is directly from the east, where they wouldn't have encountered anything. And then possibly from the east-southeast, where they have come in close enough to the keep to avoid any uh, in any of the outposts directly to the north, and from the less likely from the southeast, and mo least likely from the southwest. Unless, of course, they have encountered some group that has clued them in to where the party is and helped guide them away from the other potential uh, forces in the area. This could be, potentially, a group from the Thieves' Guild in the uh, Merchant's Town just outside the, the wall and the castle area to the south that has been looking for the Dragon Treasure and for the party. It could also be the chaotic neutral party that the party found in their keep when they arrived and they greeted their light horse that had been trapped inside by a wizard lock, and that they found and eventually got out of the got out of the keep 
And more recently, there has been a lawful, evil, chaotic, evil party that they located as well as a group of bandits. But those just left the keep the day before. So chances are they wouldn't have had the opportunity to guide the orcs to this location, although they may encounter them depending on what direction that they're, they end up going and, and the orcs are coming from and may end up joining them. So I think the direction they're coming from is going to kind of decide whether they are being directed there. If they're coming from the south, the southwest or the southeast, they probably have been directed there by some other entity in the hopes of reducing the party's power or in routing the party completely out of the area, leaving the treasure they've collected up for grabs. Just You just have to take them from the orcs instead of the party. And both groups would be reduced in power by a conflict between them. If they're coming from the east or the north, east northeast, it's probably not very likely that they're that they that they have been directed by anyone. Though they could have run into the bandits who probably are heading north, more likely to head north where there's more open country away from the guard posts where they could establish their bandit ways. And the Chaotic evil or and lawful evil party, they could in fact themselves be part of the Thieves Guild group and could be headed south to the merchant's town or they could be headed north. So first let's look at what where the orcs are coming from. So I'm going to assign some percentages based on what I just said. I'm going to say it's only about a 10% chance they're coming from the southwest because of all the obstacles that would be in their way, even if they're being guided in. And a slightly higher chance, say 15% from the southeast. So only about 25% between those two. And then you would have the... From the east, it's probably the most likely. So we'll say of the remaining 75% chance, let's say... 45% of that chance would be from the east. And then that would leave about a 30% chance coming in from the east-northeast. So writing all that down, we're looking at from 1 to 10% southwest, from 11 to 25% southeast, from the east, 26 to 70%, and from the northeast, 71 to 100%. And that was a D8, so that is not going to work. <laughs> Let's try again with the percentage roll. A zero one. Okay, so that is going to be from the southwest. So they are, they have sort of threaded the needle for all the groups of powerful groups of creatures in that area and they are most likely being guided in probably by the thieves guild so let's see well let's say it's let's say that the chaotic evil lawful evil party there's roughly a uh, say it's about 40% chance they're part of that thieves guild group not half but pretty good chance well, the seventeen percent they are. So that means they would be they would have been headed south along the road, 
and they'd have been traveling probably a little less than a day. So the storyline will be that the orcs, while treading carefully, trying to avoid conflict with the powerful groups to the west, ran into some representatives from the Thieves' Guild who let it slip about a party in the second uh, outpost from the town with a good idea of where that was. The orcs were directed in that direction, and between the first outpost and the party's second outpost, they entered, they either, are they? that's the other question is, are they directly going to come to the outpost, or will they enter the road between the two outposts and continue north to the party's keep? So we're going to call that 50-50 because the directions they would have been given, I mean, they are orcs. They couldn't, maybe not necessarily follow the directions properly. So it's probably, yeah, let's say 50-50. So we'll break out a D6 for this one. On a 1, 2, or 3, they come directly at the party's uh, location from the west. Otherwise, well, they come along the road, which would be sat up south and then west. To There'll be a, a, a bend where they turn to the east. So they'll either approach it from the hillside or they'll approach it up the road. 1, 2, 3 is the hillside. Four, five, or six is the road. And all three, they're going to be approaching the hillside. So there's not as good a chance that they will encounter the lawful evil, chaotic evil party and perhaps have them join the group. So let's say it's a third. I'm going to roll a d12 because you don't get to use d d12 much. So on a one through four, they do encounter that party they decide the party decided not to necessarily go just back down the road to the town, but to work across country, maybe looking for some cheap treasure. And on a twelve, they don't encounter them. So it will be just the orcs approaching from the west, approaching from the hill to the west. So they will run into the pickets of the light infantry and the archers on that side when the alarm is raised. And that basically will set it up. This does leave the question of a reaction roll, though. Even though the orcs are intent on going after the party's keep, the party's wealth, uh, they could be, when confronted with soldiers, be taken aback by what they find there because you know, not expecting stiff resistance, for example. And there is a matter of the leader of whichever light infantry unit they run into because there are three to choose from and two of them will be deployed. One of them will be on that side. So we're going to roll for a few things here and see how things turn out. I guess the first thing is since they are intent, let's see if they surprised the, the humans, even though they are essentially on patrol. Uh, so we're going to reduce their chance from surprising from, uh, for, for the humans being surprised, from 2 in 6 to 1 in 6. And with a 3, they're not surprised. And are the orcs surprised when they run run across the human units on this hill? There'll be potential 2 out of 6. With a 6, they're not surprised. So no surprise. So an interaction, perhaps some posturing, some threatening, some uh, 
you know, attempt to intimidate by both sides. And so this is where which unit is deployed on that side is going to come into play because the lieutenants in charge of each of those units, one has no bonus from charisma, one has a 5% bonus, and one from has, has a 30% bonus. And this would be important for the interaction because due to the difference in alignment between the two groups, both to the person that will be the lieutenant that will be interacting with them and with the, the associated group, there is a total of, just from alignment, a minus 55 to the reaction roll. And the other thing is there's there are two racial preference charts. One of them is for character races for uh, party members, for, for, for PCs, and one of them is for humanoid types in relationship to each other. But I'm not aware of a chart that, that combines the two. But there are adjustments for that, for charisma reactions, for charisma for charisma reactions when encountering a group, uh, but half orcs are very considered tolerant of humans. So I would say orcs are certainly no better than that, and that will be another minus five percent. So you add all that up, that's a minus sixty percent total to the dice, which on the reaction table would drop you down to no better than a 40% positive, which would be uncertain, but 55% prone toward negative. So it's going to make a difference which of these lieutenants is interacting. So we're going to roll to see which two units were deployed and which uh, of those unit two units is on that side. So one, two, or three, the lieutenant with a 30% is in unit one with a 5% adjustment is in 2, and the window adjustment 3. So which two units are deployed? We're going to roll the d6, and 1, 2, one, two 3, 4, 5, 6. That'll be the divisions. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. All right. So 3, so the second unit is deployed, and 1, the first unit is deployed. So which of those two will be on that side? And uh, this time I'm going to roll a D8 because we want to use as many of the dice as possible. <laughs> and it will be on a 1 through 4, unit 1 with the 30% adjustment will be on that side. And on a 5 through 8, the 5% adjustment. And on an 8, is the 5%. So the total adjustment to this reaction roll is going to be minus 55%. So it will have to be a very high roll indeed to avoid immediate attacks. And it's a 68, so minus 55 is 13%, which is hostile immediate action. So the orcs are going to attack. And then we will get into the battle. We will roll initiative and see what happens. So there we are, orc attack. Gotta love it. The opening music of this podcast is Strength of the Titans. And the closing music is Late Night Radio, both by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Thank you for listening to Phantom Thoughts. I would love to hear your feedback. You don't have to be part of the show. If you want to contact me and let me know, hey, these are for your eyes only. I just wanted to give you thoughts, ideas, response. And it's really for your eyes or ears only. That's absolutely fine. I'd love to hear from you either way. So just let me know when you contact me 
Just, I don't want to be part of the show. There are lots of different ways you can contact me. You can send me an email at phantomthoughtspodcast at gmail.com. And that can be a regular email, or you can attach an audio file to it. You can use the message button on my podcast site on podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash phantom thoughts. You can contact me via my Google voice number, 864-209-1441. You can contact me via SpeakPipe at www.speakpipe.com slash phantom thoughts. You can contact me on Discord, The Pink Phantom. All this contact information is listed in the show notes of every episode. And thank you for those who call in. Thank you for those who don't call in. I appreciate you listening and hope you'll listen again next time. Until then, I hope you have a great day.